When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. President Jimmy Carter in conversation with Jon Snow. This talk took place on the 5th of October 2011 at the Royal Festival Hall in London. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there he is, in the flesh. It is a real privilege to host this Intelligence Squared event at the Royal Festival Hall in London, where 2,500 people have come to listen and ask questions of a former US president. After a period of questions from me, he's going to be taking some from the audience. President Carter is a man who doesn't honestly need an introduction. A former US submariner, peanut farmer, the 76th governor of Georgia. As governor, he called for an end to racial discrimination. As president, he championed the environment long before most people had ever even heard of global warming. He pardoned those who evaded the draft during the Vietnam War. He negotiated the treaty that transferred the control of the Panama Canal to the state of Panama. The Camp David Accords led to a lasting peace between Israel and Egypt. And he put human rights at the very heart of his foreign policy. He was the president when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and when a revolution in Iran swept away the Shah. And for 444 days, he worked tirelessly to free American hostages held in Tehran. A dramatic rescue mission failed, and many say it was that that cost him a second term as president. The hostages were released 20 minutes after he left office in January 1981. Since leaving office... He has, among other things, created the Carter Center, which monitors elections around the world, advances human rights, and has led the effort to rid the world of guinea worm, which will be only the second disease in human history ever to be eradicated. He continues to call for peace between Israel and its neighbors and the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. And he serves as one of the elders, a group of independent world leaders working for peace and human rights, which was brought together by Nelson Mandela. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me 
in again welcoming the Nobel Peace Prize laureate and 39th President of the United States, the man from Plains, Georgia, President Jimmy Carter. Thank you, John. Very nice. Mr. President, religion has been very present in your life. Um, it, it's still present, and you teach a Sunday school whenever you're home in Plains. Um, I'm just wondering what you make of religion in American politics today. Gridlock in Congress, uh, elected representatives who have quite a fundamental view of the Christian faith. What do you make of religion in American politics? Well, I think the correlation of religion and uh, politics is improper in our country. If it means that um, there's any expression by an incumbent president or even a candidate of a preference for one religion over another. And although we have a very large Christian community, and I am a Christian, I'm an evangelical Christian. As you say, I teach the Bible every Sunday when I'm home. I think that the uh, separation of church and state is a very important element of our society that should be restored, not much preserved because it's violated quite often now. But um, there was a melding uh, of the right-wing, very conservative religious community and the right-wing, very conservative Republican Party about 25 or 30 years ago. And that still is a, an important factor. But I think it's less important now than it was five or six years ago. Really? Because, yes, I, I mean, if we, if we look at the Republican lineup for the presidential, and it's still very much in the mix, but if, if, you, if you look at uh, Governor Rick Perry of Texas, sure. I mean, this is going some. I know, but they're not going to win. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and obviously, in the Republican Party now, the entire party has moved very, very conservative in its nature. And to appeal to that... Um, that part of the Republican Party, all of the candidates have moved, I would say, away from the central part of the political spectrum to the right wing. In the past, in all of our elections, almost down through history, the primaries were fought pretty much on a partisan basis, and maybe with Democrats being more liberal, Republicans more conservative. And then the struggle for the presidency itself, after the nominees are chosen, was to move toward the center and see who could take the center. But in my opinion, in this particular primary, the Republicans are moving so far away from the center that it's going to be difficult for them to come back. And in the absence of that, even in this early stage, almost a year ahead of time, more than a year ahead of time, they, uh, they've left that arena open for President Obama to fill. So I feel quite confident that the Republican Party, once it chooses a nominee, is not going to be able to capture that central part of nonpartisan people, of independents, and even the moderate Republicans. But you don't need me to tell you that these are awful times economically for many Americans. Well, they are Americans. in our country and also in Europe. There's no uh, doubt about that. And that opens up a kind of ugly space, a space where people are looking for messianic leaders, if you like. Um, That's true. And there, there are radical elements that are building up both in my country and yours. I think we've basically, in the last few years, abandoned, for instance, the growing commitment to deal, deal with global warming. That's almost a dead issue now. There's nobody much talking about it. And uh, in our country, the, um, the main target uh, 
of people who uh, are attacked in the Republican Party, at least, are immigrants. And of course, throughout almost every country in Europe, there's an aversion now that's really a new coming and very disturbing trend to condemn people who haven't been living here for a long time as an intruders who might compete for a job. So I think that's a, an element of racial prejudice that has intruded itself upon the political system and the social system as a result, perhaps, of a weakened economic system. You say you're confident that uh, President Obama will win. Are you confident he'll run? Yes, he has told me he was going to run, but he's running already. Uh, I think any, anybody that analyzes what he's doing now with his speeches, with his positions on issues, would, would find it obvious that he's going to run. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You see, I'm wondering whether you don't feel a sense of disappointment because many of the causes that you really espouse and have worked tirelessly ever since you became president, and even when you were president, yes. have in some ways um, fallen down on his watch. And I would raise most specifically the matter of Israel-Palestine. Yes. You want me to comment on that? I do. I'm wondering, <laughs> I, I, well, I'm, I'm wondering, for example, I mean, I imagine you would absolutely have stood by his view yes. that there should be no more settlements absolutely. built in Palestinian territory. I was very excited um, when President Obama went to Cairo and said that a policy of my nation and my government is no more Israeli settlements in Palestine. And this sent a wave of hope and aspirations for the Palestinians finally to get some basic political and human rights. And uh, of course it was rejected in its totality by the Netanyahu regime. And then I was also encouraged this past uh, May when President Obama repeated the policy that all his predecessors have had since Israel was a nation, uh, since 1967 at least, that Israel should withdraw from the occupied territories except for the 1967 borders modified. And uh, apparently he's abandoned that as well. Now, when he made his recent speech in the United Nations, there was no mention of 67 borders. And uh, I think this... Uh, so what do you think is happening? I think it's the political pressures within our country from, from the uh, supporters of Israel. And I'm a supporter of Israel, I might add to say. My hope, my number one... Uh, international dream and prayer has been to bring peace to Israel. But I don't think that Israel will ever find peace as long as they are occupying foreign territory of the Palestinians and also Syria and depriving the citizens of life. But I'm wondering whether the reading of the Israel lobby, as you do describe it, uh, is actually correct. The, is it not, in fact, itself much more diverse than people give credit for. Sure, in Florida, you tend to get a pretty hard-line well, uh, position, but on the East Coast and in California, there's a very diverse range of opinions amongst American Jewry. Well, you refer to the Israeli lobby. If, if you refer to AIPAC, for instance, it's been there ever since President Eisenhower was in office in the 1950s. Uh, the answer is they are united. But I think that is not representative of the Jewish community in America, that is the Americans in, Amer in the United States who happen to be uh, Jews, I think that they are, are very much inclined to agree with what I've just said, that Israel needs to have peace and Israel must quit persecuting the Palestinians and withdraw from Pal Palestinian territory in order to have peace. And, and the um, 1967 borders are not sacrosanct. You know, they can be modified to some degree. And I think that the Palestinians, and I personally would agree, 
with what President Obama said earlier and what his predecessors have said as well, and that is the 67 border should be a guideline but should be modified. I was involved in the so-called Geneva Accords. I, in fact, I was involved in the negotiations between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and I made the keynote speech at, the, at Geneva when it was announced. And it called for leaving half of the Israelis' settlers in Palestine in exchange for some property of Israel that would go to the Palestinians to modify the borders. And when I was speaking on the last time, I had a long discussion with uh, Ariel Sharon, very conservative uh, prime minister, as you know. Sharon had accepted that premise. In fact, he pointed out to me a very intriguing idea. He said, why don't Israel give to the Palestinians a, a land corridor between Gaza and the West Bank, which is about 36 miles, and then let them build on that corridor a railroad and a highway. It'll be owned by the Palestinians as a land swap, and the Israelis will maintain uh, security. And uh, when the Israelis want to go from one part of the Negev desert to another, they would just go under a tunnel or over a bridge and let the Palestinians have that land. So all of the predecessors of Netanyahu have accepted the premise that Israel must give up the occupied territories in order for, to have peace. This is what everybody knows as a two-state solution. Netanyahu and Lieberman and others are now moving inevitably, apparently to me, to a one-state solution where there's only going to be one nation between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea controlled ostensibly by the Jews, the Israelis. But uh, this can't uh, lie. A state about which you, you dared to conjure the word apartheid. It, that's the prospect. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. So you, you're either going to have, uh, right now there's a, there are a majority of non-Jews in that one state but they're not a majority of non-Jewish voters yet because the Palestinians are younger in age, but it's just a few years before there'll be a majority of non-Jews in that one state area. And Israel will be faced with an with a impossible choice, either have uh, part of their citizens deprived of a right of citizenship, that is the non-Jews, or to let the Arabs outvote the Jews in their own country. So you can see this is inevitably moving toward a tragedy, in my opinion, for Israel. But apparently that's what Netanyahu is, is trying to do. There is another side to the equation, and that, of course, is the preparedness by Hamas and others yes. to accept the right of Israel to exist. They're all prepared to do that. The Quarter Center is one of the few organizations in the world that, that deals with all the aspects of the peace process in the Middle East, with Israel, with Lebanon, with Jordan, with, with uh, Syria, with Egypt and with Hamas, and also with uh, Fatah, of course. And all of the Arab countries, as you know, have made the so-called Arab peace proposal to recognize Israel diplomatically and an equal trading partner if Israel will just do what I just said, withdraw basically to the 67 borders. And uh, Hamas leadership have announced publicly and told me privately that they will accept the, um, Israel's existence within the 67 borders modified by negotiation. They've also said that they would, they would anoint uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of a CPLO, to be their representative negotiator. And they would accept any, any deal negotiated by Abbas with Israel, provided the Palestinians have a right to vote on it in a referendum and approve the results of the negotiation. So I think there's adequate flexibility on the Arab side. And in the past, there has been flexibility on the Israeli side. Now, apparently, that flexibility is gone. Where does all this in you come from? I mean, how did somebody who grew up in what was a very segregated state uh, was 
a southern state. Sure. How, how did you emerge as somebody who wanted an end to racial discrimination and who was prepared to countenance all sorts of international settlements like Israel-Palestine that many other people in America just can't cope with? Well, two things. One is that, I, as I say, I, I teach the Bible every Sunday when I'm home. Uh, half the time in the New Testament, half the time in the Hebrew text, the Old Testament. So I'm familiar with biblical history and with geography and so forth. But I think the, the racial issue about which you ask, I, I grew up in a community called Archery, uh, about two and a half miles outside the little town of Plains, which has about 600 people. Uh, there were 200 people in, in Archery. We didn't have any white neighbors. All my neighbors were African-American, were black people. So I grew up in a culture of, black, of the black community. I wrote a book about that called An Hour Before Daylight, which is still on sale, by the way. <laughs> um, and but the end, BBC does not allow a commercial. I didn't make a commercial, no. <laughs> uh, just an announcement. But, uh, <laughs> but I, at the end of the book, I, I tried to think of the five people in my life, other than my mother and father, that shaped my life. And only two of those people were, were white. So I, I was immersed in a black culture as a child until I was 12 or 13 years old. My mother was a registered nurse, a m- member of the medical profession, and she never paid any attention to racial segregation or racial distinction. So I think it was, it was that realization on my part as an evolving adult that legal segregation under the Supreme Court ruling and the congressional acts and so forth was a millstone not only around the neck of my black neighbors, but a millstone around the white people who were imposing our will on these people whom we considered to be inferior. And I knew from biblical teaching, my religion and my mother, that we were not superior and they were not inferior. A peanut is a very small nut. Um, And your family were peanut farmers. Still is. Still still are. are. Uh, And I'm wondering how from this very small nut and its production you found your way to becoming governor of Georgia and president of the United States. I mean, you must be a very ambitious, very competitive man. <laughs> that must be your downside. Well, <laughs> when I was six years old, if you had asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said, I want to go to Annapolis and be a naval officer. Right. That was it. Which you did. Which I did. No one in my father's family had ever had a chance to finish high school before. And my daddy and my mother wanted me to have a chance to go to college. At that time, there were only two free universities in America. One was West Point, and the other was Annapolis. And I had a favorite uncle in the Navy, so I chose Annapolis. And I went to Annapolis, and I became a submarine officer, and then I worked for Admiral Rickhove. I developed the second atomic submarine. And then when I resigned from the Navy at my father's death, I didn't think about going into politics for eight or ten years. I was a full-time peanut farmer and and a warehouseman. And then I was the chairman of a local school board, and there was a, a, a common belief among the political leaders of my state, Democratic mostly, and a few Republicans, that uh, school segregation should prevail, and that we would close down the public school system if black students were admitted to the classrooms. I wanted to do something about it, so I ran for the state senate, and I served two terms. And, um, and then I ran for governor unsuccessfully, then I ran for governor successfully. But I never dreamed of running for president until after I'd been in office 
as governor. So I didn't have an ambition as a young person ever to go into politics. That's just evolved step by step. But you are competitive, aren't you? Somebody said, I think it was Hamilton Jordan, said your campaign manager that you thought you could probably make a better turkey noise than a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, some people said they look at a calendar and I look at a watch. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, I, I have um, always had an inclination if I thought a goal was worthwhile, like at the Carter Center, you know, we devote our full time to making sure that that uh, prospect of success, although it might be remote, comes into reality, so I don't mind competing if I think the goal is proper. I've enumerated your, um, <laughs> well, some of your extraordinary achievements as president, but were you a good president, and would you be a better one now? Leaving out the question of age. Yes. Which is irrelevant. Yes. <laughs> would you be a better president now than you were no, I don't, think, I don't think so. This is a difficult time for any president. And it's an unprecedented uh, political atmosphere in my country. It never has prevailed before, except perhaps during the Civil War when we were act, actually uh, in conflict between the North and South. But there's a polarization in my country that is totally unprecedented. And it's brought about by the massive infusion of money into the political structure of America. You couldn't possibly expect now to be the Democratic or Republican nominee unless you could raise 200, 300, 400 million dollars. Obama will probably raise a billion dollars. Uh, when I ran for president against Gerald Ford, we didn't accept any contributions. In America, there's a, there was a law then and now that, that every taxpayer could, could put a little check mark on his income tax and it's two dollars. So he and Ford and I both, and later Reagan and I both, ran without any contributions. Our Supreme Court uh, of the United States, I see, January before last, made the stupidest decision that the Supreme Court has ever made by ruling, in effect, that corporations are people, and there's absolutely no limit on how much a corporation can give to political candidates. Even corporations in our country that uh, have foreign ownership, they can give as much money as they want to to any candidate, and they don't have to be revealed publicly where the funds derive. So this is this has meant now that 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 people who are incumbent of who have some vote to sell in the future or in office have a plethora of money, and in almost every campaign now, the number one project is to tear down the personal reputation of your opponent, mm. the negative advertising. And although most American voters say it, we don't pay any attention to that, we don't like negative advertising, it really works. So that polarization at the local level carries over into Washington. This is unprecedented in our country. Your presidency ended in the appalling hostage crisis. Yes. Um, 444 days. I remember. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I was actually in Tehran yeah. uh, uh. for much of that time. And I wondered, how, you're a man of religion, did you, how did you feel about Iran immediately after you left office? They, they bamboozled you out of office in many ways. Well, I, I don't blame you for that, but uh, after the Shah was overthrown, I thought it was proper for me to have diplomatic relations with the revolutionary government, with the Ayatollah's government. And I did. 
they had a large number of diplomats in Washington. I had, as you know, a large number of diplomats in Tehran. And I don't think, I really don't believe personally that the Ayatollah knew ahead of time that the militant students were going to take our embassy and capture our hostages. Later, though, it evolved, as you know, into a long period of time. But I think, uh, I thought when I left office and, and now, that the United States should have diplomatic relations with Iran. Mm -hmm. And within the bounds of propriety and diplomatic niceties, that we should have maximum communication between Washington and Tehran. I still feel that way because I believe that the human rights abuses in, in Iran could be lessened by beneficial United States influence. And I you, think, you think Hillary Clinton should go there? Well, that's a decision for the president to make. You know, but I mean, it would take a very important, big level person. Well, let me say this. When President Obama was running, as a, he promised to do that. And I don't blame him or the United States for that lack of communication because it's been a reciprocal aversion by, from Tehran against it as well. Well, the yes, open, I, I he offered the open hand of friendship right at the beginning. Yes. But nothing seemed to go with it. And that seems to feel a little bit about it, like Israel-Palestine. I, I, I still believe that every possible opportunity, either indirectly or with lower personnel to begin with, leading up to a high level, that the more communication we can have with any uh, other entity that causes problems is better for our country. We're powerful enough to withstand you know, we're reaching out a hand of, uh, of friendship, even though sometimes it may be rebuffed. Would you ever go to Iran? Well, I'm not, I'm persona non grata in Iran. You know, the, the buildup of, pu of publicity against me when I was president and, and, and during the Iran hostage crisis. Can, I, can I, I tell you that I saw some graffiti on a wall uh, outside the embassy um, whilst the hostages were being held, and it read, Crater is a dag and a donkey. And it actually meant Carter is a dog and a donkey. Oh, I see. Well, I think a lot of people in Iran maybe still feel the same way. <laughs> but you mentioned the fact that I was a member of the elders, and the elders, uh, some of the others, like Kofi Annan, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, and, say, President Cardoso, uh, the former head of uh, Brazil's government, and Mary Robinson, the former president of uh, Ireland, and so forth, uh, we had a, have arranged uh, among ourselves at a propitious time for a delegation of the elders to go to Tehran to see if we can do something to lessen the tension. Uh, and to remove the threat of a nuclear uh, effort. Do you think that the world's response and America's response to 9-11 was right? At the beginning it was, yes. I think that um, immediately after 9-11, we had almost unanimous expressions of condolence and support from around the world, including in Tehran, by the way. But um, we have made serious mistakes since then. Uh, the worst mistake was when George W. Bush decided to invade Iraq which I strongly opposed. And, uh, ably, I ably, assisted by Tony, ably assisted by Tony Blair. That's right. I, I, I condemned Tony Blair privately and publicly because he acquiesced in that. I think it was a serious mistake. So what would you have done? Well, I think that, that it was proper for the United States to go into Afghanistan. Uh, because that's where al-Qaeda had solidified its uh, presence and support from the Taliban government and so forth. I think we had to go in and, and remove the threat of uh, Taliban strength. After that, instead of looking toward Iraq with totally false premises, and I think the leaders knew that they were false at the time, we should have stayed in Afghanistan and used a, a, a tiny portion of the money we've spent in Iraq to rebuild 
Afghanistan to rebuild the schools and to rebuild the highways and to, and to rebuild uh, other infrastructure that had been destroyed by the Soviet invasion and partially by our invasion. I think if we had done that, we would now have a democratic government in, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan and we would not have been embroiled in the costly and counterproductive war in Iraq. And now, I mean, how, how would you see extricating from Afghanistan? Do you, do you the, believe that the... The sooner uh, the better. Well, but do you, do you believe the current uh, assassination of targeted individuals by drone is a, is, a, is, is, is a right thing? It's not something that I would have done, but I'm really not in a position to criticize President Obama for his decision. I, I don't want to be in that position. And the killing of um, Osama bin Laden? I think that was probably justified, yes. Osama bin Laden had, had deliberately killed more than 3,000 of my own fellow citizens. I think he deserved to be killed, yes. Do you think America has understood the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan? I know one of us has. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a general premise, uh, I would say a majority of Americans now, looking back on the lies that were told about the situation in Iraq concerning weapons of mass destruction, I think now see that Iraqi invasion was a mistake, yes. How do you view the Arab Spring? With uh, surprise and excitement and uh, pleasure and uncertainty about the future. Uh, the Carter Center will be helping with the election in, in, uh, in, in uh, uh, Tunisia very soon. Uh, I was on the telephone last week with the Field Marshal Tantawi of Egypt. Uh, they are moving toward an election for Parliament first in the draft of a new constitution, the election of a president in 2013. Do you feel slightly uneasy about Egypt? I mean, the army is still in, in, a way, in, in control. In a way, I'm familiar with the army leaders, and, and as you probably know, ever since ever since the time of, of Nasser and, yeah. and Sadat and, 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 and also Mubarak, the army has been in charge in Egypt of uh, military, political, and economic, and finance. Mm. The army has been totally dominant in all those respects. And I think that the military leadership now don't know them all, of course, don't know many of them. I think they want to adhere to their position of dominance, not only in the military, but also in to the maintain economy. their economy, yeah. economic superiority. I think they'll give up as little political power as they can possibly do. They have to conform to some degrees of moving toward democracy and free elections. And the, the recent uh, agreement that I've just read about in the news media uh, that happened within the last few days is to have an election beginning in November for parliamentary members and let that extend on a series of phased steps to early in 2012, then let them uh, write a new constitution and, and elect a relatively weak president in 2013. I, I think that process can very well be successful, yes. How do you read the difference between the West's response to Libya and the West's response to Syria? Uh, they're two totally different things. Of uh, obviously, uh, the leadership, I think, of France has brought about Europe involvement in Libya and maybe a little bit more reluctant than the United States. Uh, it's been a successful, you might say, revolution. Uh, Libya, so far. I'm sorry? So far. 
So far, yeah, I so mean, far. It, it's it's a, and, got and, some interesting ingredients. And so far, there is a, a, some element of identification of a political leadership in there, in Libya. My hope is that they'll move toward uh, democracy in, in a way. If they do, we'll offer our services as the Carter Center to help with uh, the election itself. Uh, and uh, I think that the military invasion, uh, participation by the West in Libya, as you know, was limited. But I think that uh, to take a military position in Syria would be a much more serious thing. Uh, the Syrian government is ancient. It's, uh, it's been fairly enlightened in recent years until this uprising began. Um, and, and I think that the surrounding countries would deplore uh, severely uh, any Western intrusion into Syria. I don't think Turkey would, would approve of that, for instance, and, and neither would other countries that surround Although Syria. Although Turkey, interestingly, is critical. Uh, expressing great misgivings. Critical. As you know, the Turkish prime minister went to Syria and tried to induce them to back off from, from their military action to the mostly peaceful demonstrations. I don't know what's going to happen in Syria, but I don't think it's uh, at all possible for Western nations to take military action by invading or attacking Syria. Southern Sudan is something which you've really invested a yes. huge amount of effort in. I have. Um, it's going to be a huge mountain to climb, isn't it, to bring that country it has been. to development? We've been involved in southern Sudan since 1988. I've been there often, all over southern Sudan, as well as the northern part of the country. We've had major health programs there. We've negotiated uh, ceasefire agreements between the north and south. Uh, we were there for the registration of voters, for the election that took place throughout the entire country of Sudan April before last. Uh, we were there for the preparation of the referendum. Uh, we were also there when the referendum took place, and we are still deeply involved in, in Sudan. I not only have uh, staff from the Carter Center there trying to maintain peaceful relationships between the new government and the, and the out, out, outstanding middle issue groups that are scattered around, but also between North and South Sudan. In fact, I was on the phone last week, the week before last, with uh, President Bashir from the northern part of Sudan trying to make him encourage peace in the South. But, uh, but I think that... Uh, that South Sudan now has tremendous potential for a successful uh, administration. They are blessed with about 70% of all the oil in Sudan, which is fairly uh, substantial. So they have a, an economic base on which to build a new country. Um, before I open it up to the audience, and I'm going to invite people to go to four microphones that are dotted around, uh, but don't stampede, um, but that'll be in a few moments' time. I just wanted to ask you a few personal questions. I mean, I want to just ask you um, what role in your life Rosalind plays? Is she the ambition in your life? Well, when Rosalind was born, I lived next door. <laughs> and when I was... Uh, you, remember, three, you remember her birth? No, but I, <laughs> I've been told by my mother that I used to go next door and look through the cradle at my future wife. Uh, <laughs> She was three, she's three years younger than I. And we grew up in the same little town that has about 630 people. We, our families have been there since the early 1800s. We own the same land we did all that time. Uh, we, I fell in love with Rosalind on my first date. Uh, six months later, I asked her to marry me. She said no. Uh, <laughs> and then five months later, she finally agreed to get married. And, uh, 
that was 65 years ago. So we have a fairly good relationship. Yes. But and you, you still live in what we call a bungalow and a very small one. We, we call a low-level house such yeah. as yours. I've seen it because I've, I've been outside as a, as a journalist. Um, I mean... What, what, <laughs> what? You, you're welcome to come in next time. <laughs> that, that, that's what I was fishing for. All right. uh, <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, most former presidents um, do tend to end up living rather graciously uh, in, in very large premises. <laughs> what is it? I mean, you didn't need anything more? No, not really. I, You've got in, a huge family. In a fairly weak moment after I was defeated and while I was still in office, I made a statement that I was going to emulate Harry Truman and not use my service in the White House uh, to enrich myself. And it may have been a, a mistake, but I, I adhere <laughs> to that. So I, I have made my income primarily from writing books. Uh, I've now finished 29 books. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of them will be published in the next few months. And, uh, I feel another commercial coming Well, <laughs> I'm not even going to announce the names of it. <laughs> And I also get uh, the salary, I mean, the retirement of a president, and mm-hmm. I'm a full-time professor at Emory University, and I get a salary there, so I mm-hmm. have an adequate income. Mm-hmm. We, and our farm makes a little bit of money as well, so we don't have any problem with... It, with peanuts it. are still making money? Mainly pine trees. Uh-huh. Now, we don't make any money anymore on peanuts, some money on cotton, but pine trees are a mainly source of income. And, uh, what do you do with them? Well, we plant them like, like uh, a big crop. Uh, we and, plant, and, and sell the wood? Yes, we plant the peanuts, I mean the, the pine trees, and very small ones, mm-hmm. uh, 912 acres, as a matter of fact, <laughs> nine by six. And then after about 10 or 12 years, we thin them out and then we nurture them. And then after about 25 years, we harvest them for timber, lumber. And so this, it's, it's the biggest industry in Georgia. And so we have a good, a good income. And uh, I, I make I've got a lot of money sometimes with uh, speeches mm-hmm. like former presidents do. Mm-hmm. A good bit of that money goes to the Carter Center. So mm-hmm. we give money to the Carter Center rather than taking any sort of salary or anything. But it's a very, very good and, and prosperous life that we have. Now, I, I hope you don't mind me mentioning, but you're 87. Yes, that's um, right. And uh, that's a formidable age. Yeah, and uh, four days. <laughs> it's amazing. <Yeah. laughs> um, but you've had your knees... <laughs> You've had your knees fixed very successfully, yes, uh, only in the last few months. You walked onto the stage you know, as a man of 50. And um, I wondered what the secret is. What is the secret? I mean, the, you seem to have completely boundless energy, uh, and you still seem to be competing for something. Well, my, almost my entire public life is devoted to the Carter Center. And we have a wide range of, of, of projects we've had projects in more than 70 nations. It, not coincidentally, 35 of those countries are in Africa where the need is greatest. So almost every day we have uh, new challenges in life, uh, opportunities for adventure, unpredictability, excitement, mm-hmm. sometimes disappointment, sometimes gratification. So it's a very mm-hmm. wonderful life that we have. Uh, yeah, but a lot of that's on a plane. I mean, you've come all the way over from Atlanta. You've yeah. been to the Netherlands on the way. I mean, you know, yeah, you, also, you're not thinking of slowing down. I'm thinking of it, but I haven't decided to do it yet. Yeah. Well, I had both my knees replaced, this, this the last one in August, and this is my first trip 
you know, away from home. I had to recover with physical yeah. therapy, but I... I, I gather you read about, Harry Potter while you were doing that. You know, yes. I, <laughs> I, I finished, I finished uh, writing two books. I did my work at the Carter Center. I painted a, a painting that we're going to use for a Christmas card, and I, I read the entire Harry Potter series <laughs> <laughs> because we're going to Universal Studios in January with my entire family, and I wanted to be able to converse with my grandchildren about Harry Potter, so, uh, <laughs> and I enjoyed it, I might say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you rate them? I mean, are, are they good writing, do you think? I mean, you know, I, I was really surprised at how Mrs. Rawlings used uh, almost adult uh, vocabulary in a very complex um, story yeah. uh, and, and described in formerly incredible scenes of what was a different world. And, and I believe that the young children to whom parents had to read the books and ones that are just beginning to read their first books, I think it's been a, a wonderful educational impact on the world's children uh, that's very beneficial. Who did you identify with? <laughs> Who do we cast you as <laughs> at Universal Studios? <laughs> oh, well, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good moment to open it up to the, uh, to the rest of the floor. Thank you very much I indeed for, for that. Um, <laughs> now... Uh, this is the point at which we try to restrain a stampede to the, uh, to the microphones, but there is one there, there's one there, and there's one uh, up on that level there, and then there's one right up in the gods there, and I think it's a spotlight on each of them, so you should be able to see them. And it'd be nice to see the audience a little more, so if the lighting man wants to bring the, the lights up a little bit, that'd be nice too. Um, but I can see absolutely nobody's asleep, which is a very <laughs> impressive state of affairs. Uh, I, I'm going to go... I, I can only say I can see some pink tights up there, so I'm going to go for them. Um, would you like to start on microphone four? Here, please. Thank you. Uh, the Carter Centre did great work... Would you like to give your name to President Carter? President Carter, my name is Jane Busman. Um, I wanted to say the Carter Centre did great work trying to stop the Lord's Resistance Army kidnapping children... They've kidnapped uh, over 30,000 as sex slaves and child soldiers. Um, but they're still going 25 years later. Uh, this year they've kidnapped another 600. And um, now that the America's LRA Act has stalled and the African Union are months away from years even from being able to do anything, would you have another go? Um, the the, the question that? is about the Lord's Resistance Army, yes. which, as you know, has kidnapped know. tens of thousands of... And you've done work she pays tribute to with them. But... Uh, she feels that the, the United States has the sophistication to do something about this. He can be located and should be dealt with. Would you? Well, he's been a blight on our effort in South Sudan because he's located his army in South Sudan based on very false premises of the Ten Commandments and that sort of thing. And now he's moved into other areas uh, around there. But uh, John Garang, the, the leader of the southern uh, Sudanese military and political forces, always claimed that the North Sudanese were supporting the LRA and, and, uh, and so forth. So the Lazarus Army is a blight on humanity. They have uh, persecuted thousands of uh, girls by making them mandatory wives and prostitutes. 
They killed the boys. They, they But would you have done something about it as president? Well, I think that that's, that's an area that's very difficult to implement. Of course, the International Criminal, criminal Court, as you know, have, have indicted him, and, and so far uh, he's not been located. But it's not possible for a powerful country like Great Britain or, or the United States to send an army into a foreign country. Uh, whether it be the Democratic Republic of Congress, Congo, or, or whether it be uh, Uganda or South Sudan, without the invitation of the incumbents there. So although we would like to get rid of these criminals, I don't think it's appropriate for a Western nation to intrude on the sovereignty of a country, even though a criminal might be within that country. Let's take the next question. We'll go to uh, microphone one here, please. My name is Guy Strafford. Um, President Carter, knowing what you know now, What advice would you give an incoming American president today? Well, I think the main thing is for the United States to strive once more to be a genuine superpower. And this is a presumptuous thing on me. I'm not saying that I know more than others, but I'll try to answer your question as best I can. The United States now has um, the greatest military power. Our military budget equals almost the entire budget of all the countries combined on Earth. Six times more than the second budget, that's China's. And I would like to see our country become an entity that mirrored the highest ideals of an individual human being and collectively a nation. I would, I would hope that someday in the future that if a person or leaders in any country on earth that was faced with a potential conflict, their natural thought would be, let's go to Washington because America is a champion of peace. I think if you go around the world now and ask the people the United States relation to peace, they would say that we may be one of the most warlike countries. I would hope that, that, that people throughout the world in the future Uh, if they had a chance for democracy or a new government, would say, why don't we go to Washington? Because America has evolved the finest example of democratic government on earth. Isn't that precisely what Obama promised, hope, uh, in precisely in those a, sort a of terms? And do you think the reason he has not been able to deliver is because he's defined the limits of power or because he was too inexperienced to do it? No, I don't think he was too inexperienced. I, he'd been in the U.S. Senate, and because I had been the governor of a state, but I wouldn't say he's inexperienced and so forth. I'm not criticizing Obama at all. But uh, I think that those commitments that are made at the beginning should be pursued, even though, though they are political obstacles that are almost insurmountable. Uh, I would like for the United States to be looked upon as a champion of uh, addressing environmental challenges, global warming. What is our present position on global warming? I don't know. Uh, human rights? I don't know. I would like for the United States to be the champion of uh, generosity in helping countries or people who are in need. Those are the kind of things that can be made uh, clear. And, and, and I hope that the future presidents will do this. And, and also the future prime ministers of, of, of Great Britain. I'm not singling out my own country, but, but great, powerful, secure nations that have stable democratic governments ought to be in the forefront of, of all these kinds of issues that relate to peace, human rights, environmental equality, the alleviation of suffering, freedom, democracy. 
and, and let that be a commitment that is sound, regardless of the political exigencies of partisanship within a country. Let's take uh, microphone three up in the balcony. Uh, Any question up there? Yep. Um, Mr. President, uh, my name's John Hume, and I'd like to ask a question about uh, Korea, because it's over 20 years since the Cold War ended, and yet the situation in the Korean Peninsula remains really dangerous. I believe you visited it quite recently. Uh, could you give us some insight as to how that danger could be defused? Thank you. Yeah. North Korea. Yeah. Well, the Carter Center has uh, one characteristic that's very precious to us, and that is freedom. And even though my government might have a prohibition against going and becoming involved in another place, we don't have that restraint. Uh, for instance, I go to Cuba when I want to, and I've been to North Korea three times, uh, trying to uh, put a termination to the nuclear threat there. Uh, in 1994, I went to North Korea, met with Kim Il-sung, and I was able with my wife to negotiate a complete agreement between the United States and North Korea. And Kim Il-sung agreed to do away with that nuclear program and, and, and do a number of other things. And, and that was stabilized and accepted by the Clinton administration. And as you may remember, our foreign, our Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, went to Pyongyang to confirm this agreement that I negotiated. When George W. Bush came in office, he canceled that agreement. And the North Koreans responded by resuming their nuclear program. I've been in North Korea twice recently, once with a group of elders and once representing the District Carter Center. And, and I believe, you may not agree with this, I believe that the North Koreans are now willing to give up their entire nuclear program and to negotiate a peace agreement with South Korea and the United States. That's, that's not exactly right with, with uh, China and the United States because the original uh, ceasefire that ended the Korean War was not with South Korea. And, and, and the United States is now pretty deeply in bed with South Korea, so we don't move on any element that relates to North Korea without approval from Seoul. So we are restrained unnecessarily, in my opinion, by moving from that. But I think that we ought to have direct talks with North Korea. We ought to find out what North Korea is willing to do, see if they will give up their nuclear weapons, if the United States will recognize them diplomatically and have normal trade relations with them and lift the embargo that we've had now, as you pointed out, 60 years or so. So the, the, the situation is ripe for the resolution of that Korean Peninsula crisis. And I think the United States is the only entity that can bring that about, but it would take a change in our policy, at least to deal with the North Koreans in, in good faith. I think the North Koreans are ready based on my own experience in talking to them personally. Do you think you were ever a mainstream politician or have you always been out on a limb? And why, <laughs> why aren't more people with you given what you're espousing things that many ordinary people in Europe would probably support wholeheartedly? And yet in America, let's be fair, um, sometimes you wonder whether it's a good idea for you to turn up on a <laughs> candidate's you know, campaign. Well, I know that. Well... <laughs> You know, my position on, on Cuba and my position on North Korea and my position on Nepal and my position on uh, the Mideast with Palestinians. Venezuela? And Venezuela. We've, we've monitored four elections in Venezuela. These are 
kind of outlaw regimes for the United States government. But I, since I left office, I've never been to a foreign country that I didn't first get approval from the White House. And I always let them know what my purpose is, is in going. When I return, I'm very meticulous. I write, my, I write my trip report on the way home. The next day, I send a full copy of my, of my activities to the White House, to the Secretary of State, and sometimes to the you know, Secretary General of the United Nations. But um, I don't have to deal with the, with the political pressures of the White House. But when and, they see you coming, do you think they react with joy or a groan? Which one? <laughs> Where the I White go? House. Well, I mean, over the years. Well, when I go to Cuba, the Castro brothers are very eager to see me come. No, 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 I mean, but the George Bush, for example, sitting in the White House. Well, it it varies. And I'm being very frank with you in this private conversation. Of course. Uh, (laughs) I had my best relationship uh, with George H.W. Bush, George Bush Sr., and his Secretary of State, James Baker. And history would probably judge that he was a pretty good president. He was a very good president, and, and he was a closest to the Carter Center. Quite often, as a matter of fact, uh, President, then-President Bush would ask the Carter Center to go to places that the gov- uh, government of the United States didn't want to go to or couldn't go to. And then when I would return, he would ask me to come to the White House and meet with him and the Secretary of State and the Vice President and explain what we did. And uh, so that, that, that included the Mideast and, and dealing with the Palestinians. It, it also included going to other places. But uh, some of the uh, President, uh-huh. understandably, what about Clinton? We didn't have a very good relationship with President Clinton. I think one of the reasons was that when he was uh, inaugurated president, the news rep- media there, the Washington Post and New York Times, said that almost all of his foreign policy uh, members were Carter people. And this was Carter Redux, <laughs> reborn. And I think that President Clinton had a, a natural reaction against my intruding into the foreign policy of the United States. And I, I don't think I've ever uh, done anything of, of a secret nature that the president didn't know about. And sometimes the president might say, privately, I agree with you, what you advocate, but I can't espouse that position because of other considerations that, that, I, don't, that I don't have personally as a private citizen. And well, I, has I, any I, American president ever said that of your, what you've said about Israel, for example? I would, I would guess, this is, uh, I would guess that, I believe, not based on his statement, I believe that President Obama privately agrees with our position on the Mideast. I think he expressed himself very clearly when he made his speech in Cairo saying no more settlements. And I think he, made it, he expressed himself very sincerely when he said earlier this year in May that 67 borders have to prevail. I believe that's what he really believes. So is the pressure intolerable or yes. he's a weak man? The pressure is incredible and incomprehensible to anybody outside our country. I felt it when I was president. Uh, in fact, when I have met, after I left office with Prime Minister Netanyahu, he condemned me for having the peace treaty with Egypt, between Israel and Egypt, because he said, I gave away the Sinai Desert. To Egypt. And on that desert area, which belonged to Egypt, Israel had built two very large Air Force bases, a large settlement, and, and they had uh, also three oil wells that belonged to Egypt. And it's true, I gave them back to Egypt. But I think the resulting treaty has been good for both countries. But, but there are some people in Israel that 
disapprove of what I did, but I think they are in the minority. Let's take another question, this time from the microphone up there, number two. Mr. President, uh, what do you think the prospects are for the United States abolishing the death penalty, and do you think the recent furore over the execution of Troy Davis in Georgia will have a lasting impact? Would you repeat that? Yes. The, what are the chances of uh, the United States ending the death penalty, and what part do you think the death of Troy Davis will play? As you may know, you probably don't remember this, but uh, there was never an execution while I was governor or president because the Supreme Court had ruled, not because of me, because during that period the Supreme Court had ruled that the death penalty was not acceptable. They restored the death penalty while I was in the White House, but there was not anybody executed until after I left. Uh, the Carter Center has a very public and firm policy to condemn the death penalty and remove it from our, from our country as an opportunity for individual states. Now, uh, about uh, almost 20 states which have their own rights on the death penalty have decided no more executions. A majority still have the death penalty. Uh, we interceded as best we could. I did personally on behalf of the Carter Center against the execution of Troy Davis because almost every person who testified against him in his original trial had recanted or changed their position and said that they were erroneously uh, remembered. And, and, and so I think that we executed an innocent man, or possibly innocent man, last week. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, as you know, is very, very conservative on some issues. But they have at least outlawed now the execution in my country of children. And also they have outlawed the execution of provable mentally ill people. And that's quite an achievement in my country. I hope that in the future we'll join all the other, quote, civilized countries in outlawing the death penalty and substitute for it, perhaps, um, a life sentence without parole. I don't see it immediately, but uh, I think the, the trend among popular uh, opinion in my country is against the death penalty. I'm going to try and take a cluster of, of quick uh, questions. So I'm going to take you, please, at uh, microphone four. Uh, Mr. President, uh, thank you for taking my question. Um, I ask this because, obviously, you're a religious man. Um, and I'm thinking of the Holy Land uh, in mind when I ask. Um, can a religious scripture ever reasonably be used to, to claim a piece of land as uh, one's own? Can, can a, uh, sorry, can a piece of scripture ever be used to take a piece of land? Uh, used to claim a piece of land. Can scripture ever be used to claim a piece of land, right. Yes, and let, let's take one up there, please. Hi, Hi my name is Chima Amiaka. Um, Mr. President, with the kind of economic collapse around the world and um, the kind of present economic distress we're in. Um, as a venerable old man, what dreams do you dare dream for America, uh, particularly with respect to the, perhaps, the notion of the American dream collapsing around a lot of people? What dreams do you have for uh, America domestically? Okay, and we'll take uh, one, one more from... What? Would you repeat that? I'm I will. I'm, um, I'm going to give you... You're going to repeat them all? I will. That's I good. Will. 
Roger Kendrick. Uh, Mr. President, it's generally accepted that world prosperity is achieved through free trade, but we don't really have free trade with China. China has consistently main, uh, maintained an undervalued yuan as its currency, and that's resulted in huge balance of payments as surpluses for China and huge balance of payments deficits for America. That has taken away a lot of American jobs. Why has America never addressed that problem and solved it, particularly as it may mean that China overtakes the United States as the world's biggest, strongest nation sooner than might otherwise have been the case? Uh, let's, go, let's go to the first one then. Uh, can religious scripture ever be used to claim a piece of land? Well, religious scripture is used to claim land in Israel. As you know, despite the fact that Israel was formed by the United Nations, that the United Nations calls for Israel to withdraw from occupied territories, and the United Nations Resolution uh, 264 says that uh, war cannot be used to acquire property, there are some deeply religious people in Israel that say that uh, the entire Holy Land was given by God to, to the Jews. Uh, I, I, I teach this lesson in, in my Sunday school class on occasion. And, and I know that when Joshua came across the Jordan River uh, for the next uh, 400 years or so, the judges were trying to get the land from a different uh, people, and it didn't succeed. So uh, Scripture can be used, but I don't, I don't think it's a justification for modern-day uh, political decisions on, on the ownership or sovereignty over land. You can claim it based on Scripture, but uh, laws and international rulings by the United Nations should prevail. Amid the economic collapse, what dreams do you dare dream for America? Well, I think America still has the proper image of being a country that was founded on freedom, on democracy, on a heterogeneous population that historically welcomed immigrants. All of, most all of our ancestors were immigrants. Mine happened to come from here. And so I think that the basic principles of America as a champion for peace and for human rights uh, will prevail in the future. Uh, those are the dreams that I have, and I think the American dream is, uh, what I just said, is, is the dream of a majority of my fellow citizens. And it's generally accepted that uh, prosperity is achieved through free trade. Yes. Um, but uh, the questioner wondered how it was that America had not addressed the imbalances created by the unduly low exchange rate of the Chinese Well, currency. as a matter of fact, America has addressed it. Just uh, day, yesterday, the uh, U.S. Uh, Senate declared that the, uh, the Chinese were interrupting proper trade uh, by having too low a value of the yuan. Uh, if you look at the charts that I read in Economist magazine and so forth, it shows that the yuan is increasing in value, but not as rapidly as some American congressmen would, would uh, declare. So we have enormous trade with China. It's an adverse trade balance. And as you probably know, uh, China, we owe China now more than $1 trillion. About half of our total debt is owed to China because we have this improper balance. But uh, I would like to see the yuan increase in value more, but that's a decision for the Chinese to make. And I don't think American government has a right to tell China what, to, what value to set on their own currency. Um, I, I'm really worried to see so many people waiting and who may not uh, necessarily get a question. So I'm going to take as many as we can. I'll try and take two questions from here, or three questions from here, and then I'll take 
Wow. One up there and one there. We'll try and get as many thoughts going and then okay. try and wrap it up. Right. Well, I, well, you know, I have to go to Oslo in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. Go ahead. Uh, another peace prize? <laughs> uh, you deserve it. <laughs> For Great. South Sudan. Great. Right. Susan Wolf, I live in London. I'm a registered Democratic voter from Wyoming. Um, and thank you, Mr. Snow, for helping me be here tonight. Thank you. Um, Mr. Carter, I started school in Augusta, Georgia, in the segregated South. And I remember as a little child standing in the train station looking up at white waiting room, colored waiting room, going up the escalator at Davis and Paxson department store with my mother seeing white drinking fountain, colored drinking fountain, and all that at the top, and it really informs on a, on a person. I remember to your and, question. Um, so thank you for your part in fighting against that. With some of the things that are, that are happening in the States now, there, I also remember in school back then having to say, a little Jewish kid standing there in the school cafeteria having to sing Jesus Loves Me before I could get my lunch. So there wasn't a complete separation of church and state then. Add, add your question. The question is with regard to, uh, and sorry, um, you, you, know, you mentioned the religious right, the rise of, of some of these, these, these things that are going on in the states. And this may be kind of an unfair question in, in the circumstances, but what do you think is the role of the media in all of this? And can you comment on what's happening with the American media right now? A good, good question. Role of the media in the rise of religious right. Thank you very much. And, and the next question quickly from that, Mike. My question is actually very similar. I'm Paul Pressler. My first memory politically is voting for you in 1976 as a first grader. My question for you is a liberal. How do you explain the tragedy of American politics over the last generation? Nixon was more liberal than most Democrats elected today. George W. Bush is now a moderate. Sarah Palin is no longer a freak. Why... <laughs> Here, here's the question. How have the Republicans been so phenomenally successful in lurching the country to the right every day, every week, every month, every election for a generation such that the country is really no longer recognizable to people of your generation, either of either party? How do you explain that tragedy of American politics? Very good. Thank you. And the f final one from microphone one. Good evening, Mr. President. My name's Faith Jagaday. I just wanted to ask you, um, John Snow at the beginning of the evening listed a list of your achievements, and you've inspired people from my generation to my father's generation who's here tonight. I was wondering, what is your greatest achievement, and what achievement are you yet to achieve? Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to you two in a moment, and, but let's, let's just deal with that, because there's a range of really good questions. Uh, the Democrat um, from Florida who asked about the role of the media in yeah. the stoking of the religious right, the rise well, of the religious right. Well, I really feel that the, that the media in the Western world, particularly the United States and Great Britain, for instance, uh, should be and, and are free. They are diverse. And the United States now has a choice in media that we didn't have, for instance, when I was president. There were only three television stations in America, and they all had programs of a very limited nature. Now there's 24 hours of, uh, of television. And people that are naturally inclined to be conservative watch Fox. And those that are naturally inclined to be very liberal watch uh, NBC. 
and I may be seeing into somewhere in between. So now I think that the polarization is, is enhanced by the media because people select the t particular coverage, news coverage they, 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 that matches their own philosophy. And Fox has become very popular, uh, and I think that uh, Fox has been one of the main reasons we've moved to the right in, uh, in political philosophy and also maybe the right wing uh, in, 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 uh, inclination to go uh, toward uh, more conservative religious leaders. Do you, do you appear on Fox often? No, I, I haven't been invited. Well, I own, <laughs> yeah. well I, I, I'm often on Fox uh, news programs, but not on their talk shows, no. Right. Um, uh, and finally, the, the question, um, your greatest achievement, you only get a sentence each on this, uh, greatest achievement and the achievement you would most like to realize. Well, I, I think my greatest achievement in general, generalities is keeping my country at peace. We had some very serious challenges when I was president, but we never were, we never dropped a bomb, we never launched a missile, we never fired a bullet in anger, and we tried to bring peace not only to my country, but to other nations around the world as well, including Egypt and Israel. So I would say the maintenance of peace was an important uh, achievement and, and, the, and the preservation of human rights. In the future, my main achievement that I hope to realize is to eradicate guinea worm from the face of the earth. Right. I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you both standing at the altar. I'm really sorry because we've uh, unfortunately... Well, no, let's just find out what your questions were. <laughs> Go on. Very, very quickly, that, that microphone and then that one, OK? Uh, very quickly, uh, Dominic Jenkins, in this country, uh, we spend about $2 billion on our foreign office. We spend about $44 billion on our military yeah. uh, at a time of economic crisis. Uh, we do that so that we can be along in with the United States as global power projectors. Similarly, the United States sees itself as a global power projector. At a time of such an economic crisis, would it not be best to have a new agenda where we stop perhaps talking very much about nuclear weapons and we start talking about real diversion of military expenditure towards the economy, uh, towards creating a new generation of uh, students who have technical skills and would draw uh, a new economic future for our countries? And would you second that proposition? Thank you very much. And and, and the last one over here. Um, thank you for having me. Um, my name is William. I just want to ask the Mr. President, um, when we saw the introduction of this conference, the, uh, there is a video where portrayed the main objective of the Carter Center. And there is one sentence that is framed with image from Venezuela. The people's right to choose their own leadership, or sort of phrase. Um, and this is why important because the, the principle of self-determination of the nations to, to decide their future uh, has been very keen in Venezuela to, to sustain. When Mr. Mr. President went to Venezuela to help during the process of decision of the referendum in the political system, uh, we were in a very complex and co um, uh, difficult situation. Mr. President, help Then I have us. to press you for a question, just a yes. short, succinct question. The principle of self-determination has been threatened with a new theory uh, that there, there exist uh, uh, failed states. And because those failed states are not, uh, don't deserve can, can, the right to self-determination, they can be wiped out by external factors. It's, it's actually very difficult for us to pick up your question down here. If you could just do one succinct sentence. What is your question to President Carter? Yes. 
the principle of self-determination is threatened by the theory of failed states. How that, how that can be sustained, in, in, in your opinion? How can you sustain the principle of self-determination? Big question. I mean, <laughs> he's got to go to Norway. I'm going to let yeah. him off. I'm going to let him off. Uh, and then the diversion of yeah. military power to economic development. Well, obviously, uh, my hope is that in the future we can see all the nations in the world that uh, have a strong dependence on the military able to reduce their military expenditures uh, as the threat of violence and the threat of terrorism and so forth decreases. Uh, although my country does have an enormous military budget, which I think is excessive and is going to be reduced next year, by the way, uh, we still only spend about 4% of our gross national product on military, which we've done for many uh, decades or maybe even uh, two or three generations. So uh, I would like to see us move away from military expenditures to more diplomacy and an emphasis on peace and development. There's no doubt about that. And as far as self-determination is concerned, obviously this is a basic human right, is for people uh, to have the right to determine what their future will be. They have to accommodate life in a regime under which they live. In a democracy, every human being has an equal right, ostensibly, uh, to shape their own government. And you have to participate in the political process. So the, the right of self-determination ought to be preserved, but you have to accommodate the pressures and the exigencies of society, uh, including the political system that, in which you choose to live. Mr. President, you've done us more than proud. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for. But thank you very much indeed for your questions. Yeah, and of course, a really very, very big thank you to you, President Carter, for giving us so much of your time. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.